Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. We are still cruising through deep space on our Red Dwarf bonus episodes. And I'm your usual host, Scott Weatherly, and I'm joined by Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? Goldfish shoals are nipping at my toes. (laughs) Yes, we're digging right deep into some of the the classic episodes now. We've done, in the past episodes, we've done seasons uh, one, two, three, and four. So if this is the first one you're picking up, if you've just seen one Red Dwarf, this is part three. Go back and check out those other two parts because we've been deep diving into those two seas- those seasons. Um, and as I say, so for this episode, we're going to be cracking on with series five and six, which is early 90s, so 92, 93, um, or even 91, 92, I think. Um, and yeah, where were you then with Red Dwarf at this point then, Julian? This is sort of like I say, getting well into those uh, the classic run. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I was watching this on on um, PBS here in the States, and there are definitely episodes from this era that I remember watching, not live, but live in the U.S. I, I mean, I might have caught the first broadcast of them. Um, so, you know, I uh, definitely do remember episodes uh, from these seasons uh, very fondly and very clearly. What about you? Yeah, this is sort of still that prime um, Red Dwarf period for me. Like I said, I sort of came into this at sort of the tail end. I think I sort of came to it at sort of the tail end of, of four. And then it sort of made sure I watched all the others retrospectively sort of on video and bits and pieces after that. So this was probably one of the first years I sort of saw all the way through on TV. Um, I would have been, um, you know, sort of like 10, 11. Um, and this was, yeah, this is this is sort of that you know, um, prime sort of era of Red Dwarf. Like the, the budgets have gone up again a little bit. The production values are still sort of going well. The BBC is still fully behind it. Um, Rob Grant, Doug Naylor sort of like, you know, seems to be really sort of working with the, the, the whole crew, seems to be working top of their game, really. So, um, yeah, this is really where my, my love of Red Dwarf comes from. This sort of, I think, sort of like four and five as a pairing is really what sort of establishes me uh, as a fan. Well, and you said that uh, these seasons are sort of the most beloved in polls of Red Dwarf fans, right? Yes. In fact, yeah, we, we sort of spoke offline. What, recently, uh, there was a poll done, and uh, Series 5, which we're going to talk about today, has actually been voted the most favourite uh, or the favourite episode of, uh, let's say, favourite series of Red Dwarf fans. So um, looking at the list, I mean, this is the thing, you know, I go back, and I think one of the things we've said before, sort of like, three and four and even some one and two there's a lot of episodes where we've gone oh yeah it's really good that's a brilliant episode then there's others i think you know where we both sort of said oh, i'm not so keen on that one or like yeah that's good but you know there's others that are better and i think when you look at five um i think sort of like the there may be sort of i don't know if it's less highs and less lows but there's a definite consistency across this series 
Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I might be a little in the minority here in that I've been kind of keeping ratings for each episode and, you know, notes on how much I like them and then kind of, because I'm super OCD, averaging them for each season. And and I found that, you know, seasons one and two, I, I like ever so slightly more than three and four. And I like three and four ever so slightly more than uh five and six, but that's just me. And all those, they're grouped together very well. Um, I think there's sort of like every season has still has sort of like two, maybe three episodes that I think, Oh, that's just classic. I can't imagine anyone knowing red dwarf without those episodes. They're Mm. phenomenally good. Um, And it's not really until we start getting on further that that starts to drop a little. So, I mean, I think that, these are definitely strong seasons. I do feel as if they're more of a kind of uh, continuation of four, that the gap between two and three is pretty big in terms of style. Yes. And there's a big continuity reset. And so, I mean, in five, it's like, Oh, Rimmer's got a new red outfit. And, you know, I have in my notes, like it feels professional. It feels like it's all together on a, on a new level. Um, so that's, that definitely is true. Yeah, it definitely feels a bit more expansive because you get like additional sets. I mean, you know, I think every, pretty much every, um, pretty much every episode in this series, uh, you know, will have at least one set that's sort of in addition to whatever's gone before. Um, and I just find that sort of, you know, they they really are sort of throwing, maybe not throwing money at it because this isn't sort of like still isn't mega high budget, but. Mm-hmm. They're definitely sort of the BBC seems to be sort of taking it a bit more serious and uh, professional is a good way of putting it. Um, one of the things it sort of struck me a while ago, actually, quite a long one, I haven't really mentioned it, but sort of thinking back on the sort of said we said about three seasons, sort of three, four, five, and six as a grouping, because you said that sort of you know they, they have that sort of con- uh, continuity, that sort of their continuity block. Um, four and five in particular as well, sort of. I had this, this could sound really weird, um, Wizard of Oz um, association in that Lister was Dorothy. This is going to sound some, like <laughs> some weird trippy dream, but like, in the sense that like Lister is Dorothy. You know, he's trying to return home. Um, hmm. He is the sort of the, I'll say the normal one. Um, the audience you know, identification. He's the human, kind of yeah, thing. he's the yeah. human character. And it's it's not even, you know, you then have um, a, f- a feline, you know, in cat, a, a tin man in Crichton, and then uh, you know, an um, I will say an artificial looking, per- an artificial person in Rimmer, you know, sort of like with the scarecrow, right? Um, and it just sort of for me, this weird thing w- works in the sense of they change some of the things around, like you know, it's it's um, it was the lion looking to get his bravery. In this case, it's definitely sort of like you know, Rimmer's looking for his his courage and his cur- you know, that courageous thing. Um, but also, like we kept talking about this wish fulfillment of um, the last couple of seasons, these couple of series, they do can drop these things in, like you know, in, in uh, season, even in season, uh, no, season four, isn't it? Yeah, you got DNA. Um, you know, one of the first times is Crichton gets what he wants. You know, a, a little bit out of, out of nowhere, but he, you know, he gets to be a human. You know, he finds his thing. He gets his sort of like his gift from Oz and finds that he doesn't want it. Um, and in Dimension Jump, you know, you actually get to see um, what Rimmer could have been. Again, that sort of, mm. you know, what you that wish fulfillment. 
Uh, and I sort of feel that it sort of continues into Series 5 a little bit. Um, I could be talking out my ass, but it just it just sort of fit for me, this sort of like Wizard of Oz um, sort of parallels uh, between these couple of seasons. Um, no, I, th- I think that's accurate. Um, I mean, that's a very good point. Um, I do think that Wizard of Oz is kind of a touchstone. And oftentimes when you have four characters, they kind of naturally go to those kinds of positions. Um I, uh, you know, I think, for example, The Good Place uh, relatively recently wrapped and it struck me immediately in the first season, like, oh, it's Wizard of Oz, right? You know, mm. the same four characters. Um, and, and that didn't strike me as immediately with Red Dwarf. But I think you're right. Uh, and I think that wish fulfillment thing, that's part of Wizard of Oz. But, you know, um, it, it's also part of the sort of uh, narrative cycle, like. Um, I was having a conversation the other night about uh, Dan Harmon's story wheel, which is kind of just a kind of, you know, four dummies version of Campbell's, you know, hero with a thousand faces. And, Mm. you know, it's basically you have the status quo, then you have a challenge, then, you know, the guy gets what he wants. He uh, has to pay a price for it and returns changed, you know. So essentially in that in that sort of like boiling a story down to its essence uh, at least a sort of like conventional formulaic story, um, the character getting what they want and sort of paying a price and, and returning to normal in, in some way <laughs> is a kind of like classic arc. And I think it works. It fi- it's firing on all cylinders in, in Dwarf. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because it? it's, it's definitely a cycle. Because um, I think part of the problem, well, not part of the problem, but one of the things, obviously, this being a sitcom, is that status quo. That they do change things a little bit, but let's say they say they're trying to maintain that status status quo, really, I suppose, aren't they? Um okay, so let's let's jump in. Let's jump into season five and uh, just to run down. So the episodes we're gonna be talking about are uh are Hollow Ship, uh, The Inquisitor, Terraform, Quarantine, Demons and Angels, and Back to Reality. So there are some strong ones here. Um and straight away, we sort of talked something we talked about in the last series was sort of characters being very specific, you know, given an episode. We talked about Rimmer, Rimmer centric episodes. And we start with one here, really, Hollow Ship. Um, you know, basically, I love the idea of this sort of this idea, this technology of holograms being able to travel through space as a crew. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on Hollow Ship, this sort of very Rimmer centric episode? Well, I, I like it a lot. I mean, it's it definitely is one of my sort of classic episodes. Um, you know, I do I do like the hologrammatic ship. Uh, I you know I like the sort of uh, the sex deck and, and all this sort of fun <laughs> and you know there is something about the the holograms that they are the best of the best and they seem really snooty and uh, in, in some ways they suit Rimmer really well but they also don't in the sense that Rimmer is an idiot and, and can't you know muster but you can see how he would want to muster uh, up and, and sort of have that same justification for being snooty that, that they have um, I do think that um, like you were talking about sort of like returning to the status quo of the sort of uh, sitcom I, you know I have a problem with some of these Rimmer episodes that like, this is an episode that I really like. And, you know, we talked about, like, uh, you know, the Wax World episode Meltdown that Rimmer's kind of detestable. And, you know, you sort of, like, realize he's really a terrible person. Uh, you know, like, I knew he was a kid, but, you know, he's he's just a terrible, terrible person. 
And the best thing they could do was like deactivate him. Um, but you know, you're sort of going back to the status quo. And here it's sort of the opposite that by the end of the episode, I think, oh, poor Arnie. And he's not going to learn anything, right? Or he's going to go right back <laughs> into being Arnold Rimmer. Now, the, yeah, this is it. It's sort of, you, you're right. Because again, you sort of, they almost leave season four and not so much a cliffhanger, but this notion of like, yeah, he's just sort of wiped out the population of a planet. Like, granted, it was a small population, but still it was, it was like genocide. Um, you know, <laughs> and so you're, you're, you're sort of left, you know, feeling like, yeah, Rimmer's a real git. Like he's a horrible <laughs> person. Like he was, you know, cause it follows dimension jump and you sort of, you get to see what he could have been. You see the alternate in, in Ace Rimmer. And then you so see he gets given this opportunity to be this, you know, this heroic, courageous leader and just makes bad decision after bad decision. Um, and then, so, yeah, so then you, you'll say you enter in season five and you're almost asked sort of like, oh, forget about that. Now you've <laughs> got to believe that he, you know, is a bit more sort of normal. And although he's going to follow slightly underhand tactics, like, you know, he might actually deserve to be on this ship, you know, it's sort of, um, I feel in places, sort of, sometimes the episode almost suggests that you know that sort of. Do, you know, what I say, does he deserve to be there? Not because he's he's intelligent. I mean, like you said, I love the fact they all introduce themselves with their IQ. <laughs> um, but like you say, like he's snooty, and he would be he would be better off probably on this crew than than on the, on Red Dwarf. Um, but then it's sort of like you know it it, it, it starts to mirror uh, Camille. Mm-hmm. Um, in that you're then sort of asked to believe that he would sacrifice his his greatest desire really for someone that he I don't know whether he loves her or not, but he obviously meets another hologram. He's able to touch. He sleeps with her. So is is it infatuation? Is it love? I don't know. But he's supposed to follow this arc of actually sacrificing his opportunity for her. Which do you think is justifiable? What that he would sacrifice himself in that? Yeah, way? as a character sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Uh, I, I I think you're quite spot on in the comparison to Camille. Um, I think it really is that same sort of uh, same sort of narrative. I don't know that he's in love with her. I I sort of. I think that he seems to be very moved by the idea that somebody would care about him. And, you know, there is this there is this difference between him and the rest of that crew that they, you know, announce their IQ. They're they're very confident. They they don't believe in self-sacrifice. And it kind of opens with, you know, Rimmer talking about, you know, um, how, you know, it's dumb to self-sacrifice, you know. Um, Mm. And, you know, so Rimmer, you know, Rimmer doesn't have that confidence and the difference between him and that crew, besides that he's stupid by comparison and has to cheat, is that he wants to be loved. They are, you know, lovable or not, but but Rimmer craves that love. Uh, there's something yes. broken in him emotionally. Uh, not that it's wrong to cra- crave love, right? I mean, we <laughs> all do it. Uh, but I mean, there's something there's something broken in him. I mean, there's the great line in this episode that kind of summarizes the whole episode or Rimmer says, this was the chance to be someone I liked. And it seems as if part of being someone he likes is not just having respect, but having loved and so having being loved. And so he seems very moved by her sacrifice for him, 
Like that seems to be entirely unprecedented in his life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it comes back to this thing again, you know, we use dimension jump as a bit of a, a touchstone really for what Rimmer could have been. Um, and he always says about had he been given the breaks and, you know, what, what that actually means. But in this, just, just being given some affection and some sort of, maybe even some sort of, you know, some good mentoring, um, like, you know, maybe he could be a better person and a better sort of, uh, the person that he wants to be. Um, so yeah, I just find it interesting in this one that he does, he sacrifices his sort of like, what he desires most for, for someone he just meets. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it makes me wonder, does he take solace in that sort of, the act of, um, act of sacrifice, you know, because it, it's it sort of is a, a moral act, you know, him actually sort of saying, no, I can't cheat to get on this ship or having, you know, well, I'm not so worried about that, but I can't take her place. So he goes back, you know, could he take solace and, and have that as a sort of, do you think he would take solace in that? Like, I did the right thing or is Rimmer so broken that he'd still be like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've, I, again, I've missed a break sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of think that, you know, obviously we're going to go right back to the status quo. So in that status mm. quo, he, if anything, is going to think, oh, boy, I really botched that one. <laughs> you know, I screwed up again. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do think that there is a kind of like confluence of concerns here that he is concerned for her. He seems to be moved by her sacrifice for him. But he also knows he doesn't really belong there. Um, mm. You know, and I get the sense that, you know, like you said, he might do very well there. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a there's a great line in this where, you know, he's talking about how he, he left uh, to join the Space Corps to become an officer in the a gentleman and he became a chicken soup operator. You know? <laughs> um, and, and I think, well, he'd wind up being the chicken soup operator on their ship. You know, he's mm. not smart enough and he's also just not reliable enough he's not willing to learn i mean you know he prides himself on citing regulations and we learn in a later episode he has no <laughs> idea what those regulations are yeah. he is not even willing to study the things he cares about he's i i just think he's not going to do well on that ship and he sort of knows yeah you know i mean i got on because she sacrificed herself but it's not a good fit. I mean, I, I'm going to be the sort of whipping boy of the holo ship. <laughs> what do you? What do you think? No, I think I think you're probably right. He would. He would have ended up in sort of within several days. Um, he'd have probably just been banned from the sex deck, and uh, <laughs> and, and like you say, just been given the sort of menial tasks around the ship, and still felt that he was superior to whoever else. But um, yeah. You're probably right. I mean, I think that's just who he is, isn't it? Sort of like, you know, he would end up blowing the opportunity and they'd probably end up leaving him on another ship. Um, I mean, the other thing I like about Rimmer in this episode is when he does achieve it, you know, it's because uh, um, the, I can't the character, but she sort of sacrifices herself for him. And um, he gets, the, you know, he's got the uniform on, he's about to leave the Red Dwarf crew. And um, <laughs> the actual line, he sort of when he says to me, sort of, you know, they've set it up to be sort of a meaningful goodbye. And he sort of says to me, I've, I sort of say, I've come to see you as, um, you know, as, as people I met. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he can't even bring himself to be sort of nice <laughs> to, to the to sort of, you know, list of the cat and, and Crichton. So 
Um, yeah. But then it, goes, it swings both ways because the other time is whilst he's out there actually trying to do the exam to cheat uh, to get on there, um, they're already um, interviewing <laughs> for replacement holograms. Yes, yes. And all of this um, is very fun and clever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a good episode. Um, and I part of me thinks from the sort of Rob Grant and Doug Nader when they write these episodes, um, I don't know whether they're sort of writing it and saying, you know, we like Rimmer as a character. And so we can do these things. Or they actually think like, look, Chris Barry does some great impressions or does some silly voices. Can we get him to do this? Because of course he does another sort of silly voice um, in this one, doesn't he? Sort of when he sort of has his his mind meld to make himself more intelligent. Um, but he is good at it. He is very good. I enjoy this episode. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Chris Barry. I think it's sort of like, the more I watch this, I think I've said it before, the more I watch this, the more I actually realise that I think Rimmer and Chris Barry are the thing that sort of, a, a, I, I seem to enjoy the most in many ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about how, what a great actor he is and that when he mm. really excels at one of these impersonations, he uh, is able to, to have a lot of fun with it. And, and that fun is sort of infectious and contagious. Um, I, I do think that he's also able to convey somebody who is sort of superficial I think it's hard mm-hmm. to play a character who's sort of two-dimensional and superficial and sort of suggest that there really is depth underneath. And I think he does that. And I think that the essence of that character is is a very sort of cardboard, superficial character. He's not likable. He has a few things he values, but it's certainly not people. It's certainly not love. And yet, you know, underneath there is insecurity and that insecurity is tied to a beating heart and there's just enough kind of hinting uh, gesturing toward that beating heart to make you sort of not totally give up on Arnold Rimmer Mm. yeah and that's true I mean you know at some point I think one of the things we may also I think we'll try and also talk about in this episode is the American pilot and you get to Mm -hmm. see those comparisons and you you do it's, it's you do see that it's actually not easy to sell Rimmer in in that light, because he could become, you're right, really two dimensional, sort of like really sort of boring. Um, you know, they, they just, uh, if played wrong, he could just be an incredibly irritating, you know, character that's sort of almost forgettable and probably would have dropped off the show at an earlier season. Um, but like I say, has become a part of the core of, of that crew. Um, so. So that's Hollow Ship. So that's the first step. Anything else you want to say about Hollow Ship before we move on? No, my only question is, what do you think about Grant and Naylor? I mean, do you think that they legitimately like Rimmer? Or it's just sort of like, here's a clever episode to sort of put him through his paces. And while we're writing it, the sort of, uh, you know, Shakespearean love for Shylock, despite he's just a villain, sort of comes out in the writing. I don't know, because looking back... You know, in the first couple of seasons, a couple of series are very much the odd couple, aren't they? It's it is Rimmer, and it's a, it's almost like a two header really because Cat's there, and it's it's funny, but and you get Holly sort of as a, a you know rolls out the jokes, but it's very much a double header between Lister and, and Rimmer. But quite quickly, you sort of start to realise that Rimmer is the sort of the you know they they do have some um, Lister centric episodes, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of I think uh, Confidence and Paranoia. Um, you know, we sort of, but then you, you, from the moment you sort of get me squared at the end of the first mm-hmm. series, 
I think there's a sort of a realization in the writers that actually, like you said, there's a beating heart to Rimmer, and actually, they just seem to have more fun exploring that and putting him through some, you know, dreadful situations, <laughs> um, and just exploring his character because they, 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 you know, in many cases, I'm just flicking back through some of the episodes, and um, some of the, you know, the times they've done it, it's been really interesting. I mean, I go back to things like again, like thanks for the memory in season two when you know Lister gives him one of his his old girlfriends and just sort of yeah um you know Rimmer's reaction to that is really quite heartfelt you know when he, when he realizes that she didn't love him she loved Lister and all sort of stuff like you know but just that, a bit like what you said with um uh, commander Nirvana um when she shows that affection and everything to Rimmer like that means a lot to him so you know going back to back uh, thanks for the memory when he thinks he actually was loved and had this sort of person in his life, like it made him for a brief moment, a better person. Um, and I think they just keep doing that. They keep just dropping these things in these moments of um, exploring Rimmer in more and more. Like, you know, you get the lines in marooned. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of it in body swap. And then they just, you know, so uh, yeah, I honestly think that this sort of dimension jump and then melt meltdown are prime examples of them just, I think just wanting to explore this character more and more. Um, Because you get less and less sort of Rimmer-centric episodes. Sorry, Lister-centric episodes. Right, right. You know, he sort of just seems to sort of, ironically, sort of slob through the whole sort of thing. (laughs) Well, and I Um, think that's fascinating because if you look at the sort of original conception, Lister is the identifiable character, right? mm. I mean, he's more of a slob. You know, he's more he's very chill. Maybe he's unambitious, but you're supposed to identify with him and and hate Arnold Rimmer. And so I think it's interesting that Arnold Rimmer, who who sort of essentially is a foil for Lister, you know, for the audience, becomes the most interesting character. And, and I think it is key what's key there are those contradictions right that he Mm. is ambitious he knows he's terrible he knows that he's not loved but he wants to be he wants to assert authority and expertise but he knows he he fails at everything i mean these kinds of contradictions are make for a much more fascinating three-dimensional character in a strange way well i mean yeah we were going to sort of, you, you know you're going to work through we we're going to work through them but it's worth pairing up hollow ship with terraform um yeah the third episode in the series because i mean i love the idea that idea and we'll get back to the inquisitor in a minute but in terraform they actually crash land on a, a psi moon um in which imprints itself or takes an imprint of rim of, of yeah of rimmer's mind and and some of the concepts in this when you're inside rimmer's mind are fascinating Mm-hmm. Um, and really upsetting in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, th- this is where sort of like yeah, they, they really explore the character because you do go into his subconscious, and you know, there's these black hooded characters with little beady eyes, and um, you find out that they are sort of the personification of some of these negative emotions, like self doubt, self doubt, and loathing, and all sort of stuff. And then you get the monster that sort of is his uh, made up of all of these things. You know, it really digs into that. But more than that, you've got frogs that just sort of just they instead of saying Rimmer, they just useless, useless mm-hmm. Rimmer, useless. Right. Um, which I, I love has always made me laugh. Um, yeah, and I just think like 
if you you couldn't do an episode like Terraform about any of the other characters, like it wouldn't not 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 just because it would be a different episode, but like exploring their minds wouldn't probably be as interesting as exploring Rimmer's mind. Yeah, it would certainly be a very different episode, right? I mean, you could imagine. Mm. I mean, I, I think Cat is the sort of least developed of the characters. Um, but you would imagine inside Cat's brain is just kind of like, I'm awesome, and there'd just be parties <laughs> all the time and parades for Cat uh, on the streets. Uh, you know, and Lister, you know, I mean, they might go back to Kuchansky. They, you know, they go back to, um, you know, you'd have like a, the Vindaloo Swamp or something. And it's not as interesting. <laughs> No, no, and I think that's the point. I think they just—they've just sort of, honestly, latched onto Rimmer. But I think they just sort of struck on this idea that Rimmer is just more interesting. I mean, like you know, this is his mind, yet he's willing to torture himself with mm-hmm. two beautiful women that are going to sort of oil him up. Um, and it's just again, it's this notion in Rimmer that he's always just just on the verge of sort of doing something slightly good or you know something good <laughs> happening, and, and him cocking it up like. These two, you know, beautiful women, lithe women are sort of like oiling him up. And then they're like, oh, what are you going to do? You know, look, when they walk up the steps, he's like, oh, my God, are you going to take a flying leap? <laughs> um, and it's like, no, no, you, you have to be oiled up. It's, a, you know, it, it's better to conduct the electricity. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, Rimmer. It just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I do find that, uh, you know, people have, different personalities vis-a-vis sort of like their perception of their own luckiness uh, have you you known people who just are like a hard luck case and mm. you know it's like if anyone is going to be randomly pulled over by the cops it's them if anyone's gonna like you know get a piece of candy that uh, has a factory defect and there's no candy inside the wrapper right yeah. it's gonna be them yeah. um and it's just bizarre. They report bizarre things to me that I'm like, that would never happen to me. Um, and if it did, I would kind of shrug it off and say, well, you know, oh, well, um, I'm not going to dwell on it. And it, in my dreams, like I uh, everybody loves me. Usually, you know, mm-hmm. I, I am <laughs> very narcissistic. And so um, but, you know, it's clear that like it, it, Rimmer is one of those hard luck people. And he knows, like, if a woman is hitting on him there's another shoe left to drop, right? You know, yeah, yes. Nothing good will ever come his way. And I think that actually plays into Hollow Ship, right? That he sort of knows, no, this is this is going to go south. Um, you know, it, it's not going to work out. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? And part of it is is not taking that leap, you know, um, which is weird because, again, when we get into Series 7 in particular, there's a couple of episodes there where that sort of that will come into play, that taking the leap, and they they address it head on. Um, but it's, it's true; it's, it, he he's always expecting that sort of like you know every time he gets kissed, he's expecting to then get slapped, isn't he? Um, yeah. And so yeah, and I, and I think that's why I'm sort of I'm I'm kind of drawn to to Rimmer as a character <laughs> to watch, because I just find him, I do find it fascinating and. Terraform is great because I love the fact, again, it comes, it really does circle this idea of him being shown affection and appreciation because, um, you know, it's played for laughs and it's a good, it's, a, it's actually a really good joke. I can't, it does make me chuckle. But in order to get out the book, the bug is, uh, Starbug gets stuck in a swamp and it's getting pulled down. It's the swat, it's the despair swamp. And I love the fact that he doesn't realize this planet's based on his mind at first. So when they're sort of escaping, <laughs> 
and he says, "Look, we've got to get past the chasm of the chasm of gloom and the swamp of despair. To turn left, this turn left." And the cat just walks past him and goes, "You're a weird dude." <laughs> and he's like, "What? What have I done?" Um, but yeah, they've got to be nice to him, so they have this sort of like you know loving on on Arnold to sort of you know they're giving him all this sort of like trying to big him up and sort of they call him sort of like you know Duke and Iron Balls and they're sort of giving him all this sort of rah rah mm-hmm. and it works. Um, and his positive mo- emotions do come back out for that moment and fight back. Um, right, you know, it manifests. Right. They manifest, um, which I think is great. One of the things I will say, which is a great notion, is when they um, there's two moments. So you know, the first one they escape. In, he's in the the chamber, and uh, they notice. Obviously, it's when Crichton says, "You know, we wouldn't leave you. You're a member of the crew." Um, and then when they when they when they are struck down, it's sort of like you no know, one. Um, was it when when you know when one gets hit, we all go down and that sort of thing. So they have this sort of camaraderie, and Rimmer actually says, you know, yeah, like you know, all for one and one for all. He never actually mm-hmm. mentions the Musketeers, but he does say all for one and one for all. And then when his his positive emotions do manifest, they do manifest in the guise of Musketeers, don't they? Right. Um, which I really like. It's that sort of that, you know that that's um running through of that theme of sort of you know camaraderie and that's how it manifests to him is this idea of the musketeers uh, i just think that's really cool actually no and i and i have i have in my notes that those musketeers are real fun you know mm. um they're fun to watch it also sort of fits into rimmer's notions of sort of adventuresome you know that he, that yes. he that's really what he aspires to be i i think that whole ending it works very well. And of course it's, it's a lot of fun when they reverse it and they say, you know, Oh no, we didn't, we didn't mean any of that, you know, yeah. sort of that. And that's a sort of back to the status quo that works for me where it's like, we're taking the sort of convention and justifying it narratively within the episode. But I think that as we were talking, I thought of, um, you know, this does seem to suggest that, maybe if people believed in Arnold and just gave him a little bit of positive reinforcement, he might start being capable of something. I, I agree. No, I really do think the more I've watched this, the more I'm thinking that I actually, in some way, I think Lister is a part of the problem. Um, in, in an earlier episode, when they first meet Crichton, uh, in the very first episode with Crichton, the, the David Ross Crichton, mm-hmm. um, he sort of, you know, uh, uh, Crichton's cleaned up the uh, the uh, sleeping quarters, and he's like, "What have you done? You know, what? Where's all this gone? Where's Where's my mold? Uh, you know, yeah. you know, I was I was growing that mold. Is that like, why? Is it cause it drives <laughs> Rimmer mad? So like, he is there. I know it's sort of like part of what keeps Lister sane as well is giving him a purpose, giving him sort of like a, you know something to do in just winding Rimmer up. But in part of it, it makes me wonder if, like him, if if he's acting out and acting against Lister, isn't he? So he almost becomes more obtuse and more sort of obnoxious in in Lister's presence. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and do you you have some people in your life who who wind you up? I I do in my family. Um, it's yes. sort of uh, yeah. a central dynamic in my family, uh, sort of people winding me up and, and me doing that to others as well. Um, but I mean, you know, you're sort of making a sort of meta argument that sort of Lister is the villain of the piece in a way um, that, you know, really Rimmer is not so much the, the sort of two dimensional stick in the mud foil. He is that. But we 
because of that original setup, we sort of identify with Lister and Rimmer, you know, while he's a git and, you know, a, an annoying person in a lot of ways, he really need he's capable of things. He really needs mm. somebody to sort of love him and, and take him under his wing and kind of mentor him a little. Yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, it, it's interesting that, like you know, say um, to explore those those alternate versions of Rimmer to sort of travel with Ace Rimmer and to see what else is out there, um, you know, to see what else he could have become would be would be interesting, because um, I, I I do think he is a, you know he isn't he isn't a nice person like you know you you know that he probably would at least in this sort of you know version of his development would probably would stab you in the back or you know do something just do something relatively despicable to try and get himself ahead. But yeah, just if, if someone was to give him the time of day and actually sort of mentor him and support him and be that nurturing figure, then yeah, maybe he would be a better person. Well, and that, um, that gets at one of the interesting things about uh, the Simon for me. I mean, besides the fact that I, I, I don't know quite why it latches on to, to Rimmer, besides yeah. that it's, you know, it's uh, more entertaining. But, I, you know, there are several lines here where uh, where they realize that the world around them is rimmer psyche and you know there's a beat where you know lister says oh no we're really in trouble you know (laughs) you know like our lives depend on making him feel loved oh my god you know like we're we're doomed Um, (laughs) but you know and and that's very funny and it's played for laughs but it does kind of get at what you're suggesting which is that they have the same idea of lister psyche And, and it seems to me that's always struck me as very odd about that episode because it seems to me that in in most normal life we would think oh well i'm going into that person's psyche like i kind of know um what drives that person if i know that person but i wouldn't automatically think oh my god we're we're screwed here um yeah (laughs) but that does kind of get at sort of the way that they are sabotaging rimmer i mean rimmer it has his notions of himself as a loser and as doomed are perfectly mirrored in their impressions of him. And there's a kind of chicken or egg thing there of like, is he responding to them or, I mean, clearly it's a part of him, but you know, or are they reinforcing this about him and not helping him rise to the occasion? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. Almost like, um, for him, it's almost a like worst possible scenario, isn't it? Sort of forever being stuck with these people that that will never allow him or support him to grow. So it's interesting because we will get something when we get to series seven. There's, um, you know, there's an episode in that uh, Stoke Me a Clipper, oh, yeah. um, and where, where 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 this does sort of get addressed a little bit, and it's in, it'll be interesting. It's interesting what we think about it when we get to that one, actually. Um, but yeah, I just think, I think really, I think you know, having this watch back, I've, I've never really thought of it before because I've just watched it, and enjoyed it, but watching it now, like it's really standing out to me that, that Rimmer is 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 such an interesting character in all of this. Um, but yeah, so that's Hollowship, and we've also or we jump forward to Terraform, uh, and I do really enjoy Terraform. I think there's some some great gags in it as well. Because I mean, even the opening of that uh, episode with a, a, like a smashed up Crichton. Oh yeah, um, and uh, you know, there's a this is where the the writing's good. Sort of, um, I think it's, it's a it's a good joke in my eyes. But the, his his joke around the short term memory, um, 
<laughs> I just really yeah. like it. Yeah, you know, um, you know, sort well, of like uh, my short-term be... memory is affected, and that uh, with the erasure of my short-term memory is uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's just just good writing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that might be my favorite part of the episode, actually. I mean, you know, I like the ending, uh, but I really love that beginning. And it reminds me of sort of a lot of my favorite Star Trek episodes are episodes where, like, the Enterprise explodes in the teaser, you know, or, mm. or you know, uh, something, someone changes time and all of a sudden everything has changed in the teaser. And, you know, you're sort of like, how did we get here and how are we going to get out of this? And I think that's you know, it's so compelling to just kind of start an episode that aggressively and this episode does it and you know and it's also really funny you know like you know his onboard uh sort of voice says you know your legs have been crushed and they are inoperable yeah. and it just kind of yeah. goes on and on about how horrible the situation is um it's very funny and you think how in the world did this this happen yeah i think um it's again. It's it's good because the special effects are relatively good. I like the little the little robot hand, mm-hmm. um, and again, it leads to a sort of technology being what it is in when this was created early nineties. Um, obviously, it's, been, it's supposed to be set, I think, in the twenty third century. Um, and like you said, that when when the spider gets in, when the hand gets in, they think it's a tarantula, um, and and it's the moment when it craw- crawls up into Lister's crotch so it can reach the. Uh, the screen, but I like the fact that Cat thinks he's playing one of those text games. Yes, <laughs> it's like they they haven't gone away in hundreds of years. Like you know, Red, of all the technology that's on Red Dwarf, they're still playing text based games. Yeah, I did note that there are those kinds of moments where you think, uh, oh yes, this this future projection of technology has not kept up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good episode. Um, but, but let's jump back an episode. So we've done sort of like one and three. So let's jump back to number two because uh, the Inquisitor, um, which is a great design, I think he's a great looking character. But the, the idea of this is the Inquisitor, which is a, a, a an android, a self a self um, repairing android that managed to survive till the end of time, and after millennia alone, decided that there was no God, that there was only the universe and what you do with your life. So invented technology which allowed him to travel through time and space and eradicate people and replace them with their possible alternates, giving them an opportunity to live a life, um, which I like, I really like as a concept, but has flaws in the way that this episode is, is put together. Um, but what are your thoughts on, on Inquisitor? Yeah, I, I agree. I, this is one that I remember seeing, uh, you know, as a, as a young person. Um, now, and I remember the cleverness of it. Um, watching it now, I think it's clever, but not great. It kind of, as you say, it sort of doesn't totally hold together, um, you know, and it also kind of uh, regresses into the sort of monster chase at the end, although it's mm. it's still clever. Um you know, I, I have problems with DNA uh, in that respect, that it kind of devolves into a, a sort of silly monster chase. It works for you, and that's awesome. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean, this works better, but it, it comes off as sort of more clever than great, if that makes sense. Yes, I agree. I mean, the idea is good. It's another, I like the idea that it's a solid sort of sci-fi concept. Um and I think it's another one that, that opens well. I think the opening little segment of this, this episode is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, when he walks on in on some guy and basically sort of says, uh, whatever the guy's name is, like, you know, 
Raymond Burr, you've been you have squandered your life. You are a wastrel. His response is, <laughs> "Mother, is that you?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he is. He sort of, you know, he then, we, we then get this sort of glimpse of what the the Inquisitor can do. He sort of erases him from history and replaces him with this alternate version, um, which is a good concept. Um, and obviously, that it then goes on to sort of like he then meets up with with the Red Dwarf crew. Um, the problem I get sort of is, is this thing of, again, it sort of it taps into the problem with that the Red Dwarf keeps raising around time travel. Um, yeah. in, in this, and I'm going to raise it quite, it's, it's quite upfront because we'll get onto the concept of how they get judged. But Lister and Crichton are chosen to be eradicated from history, and they get as far as being removed from history. And you get to meet the alternate versions of Lister and Crichton, and in particular, you get to meet the alternative version of Lister. Who in the actor they got to they chose to play him um, is a good alternative. You know, it could be if you were to sort of cast um, a second, you know, cast a, a sort of uh, Dave Lister's brother. I think he's a good choice. But the fact of the matter is, he's still three million years into deep space wearing exactly the same clothes. So, <laughs> he, as an alternative, he hasn't done much better, has he? Yeah. No, that's true. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole sort of like, I you know, I don't know. I mean, it makes me think of, uh, you know, sort of weird retcons in comics where, you know, um, somebody is removed from continuity or, um, you know, there are elements of this in some Doctor Who episodes where somebody is kind of zapped and then they're removed from continuity, you know, back through all time or something. And I always think, well, how does anyone else remember that? And it's that same kind of problem of you get with time travel where it's like the main characters have to remember the previous iteration or the story collapses. Right. Um, Mm. And so, you know, I think like, well, if you, if you've altered time to replace someone with their alternate self, you know, how does everyone else sort of remember the previous self? How are they still there? Uh, Or, you know, they, you know, I guess, I guess they're not, but, I mean, how are the others kind of still remember? And I don't know. I mean, then then I wonder, like, it is kind of suggested at one point that um, it's sort of like what sperm um, was successful in in, in penetrating the ovum. And, Mm. you know, I think, okay, well, that's sort of having a little fun with a kind of like, you know, dice roll of, of how that all works. But... It's also kind of creepy. <laughs> like, you know, th- yeah. this robot is like, you know, um, he he's going inside some privates and, you know, making a sperm go the wrong way. I mean, how exactly mm. does this work? Uh, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the, they never really get into I mean, They never get into the technology or the house of it, other than that he has this magic glove, which is basically sort of like a, almost like a Nintendo power glove. Yes. Um um, which is fine. I'm happy with that. That's not, you know, the sort of it's, it, it, but it is weird. It's sort of um, we never see, you know, what I would see, what I would say to be a successful alternate. You know, there never seems to be like an alternate where you go, oh, that was definitely the right choice, uh, you know, to do that. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It, it's it's. Um, I, this is where it sort of falls back. Like, I would like to have seen it as a, as an as a um, what was the one where the you know where they had the the um, tension sheet 
Yes. You know, I mean, they they created an alternate there where Dave invented the tension sheet, um, that sort of thing. Like you know, why why has this sort of version? You know, and I know it's because they've got to keep it in the set, and from from a logistics point of view, they've got to have that story. But um, there there must be ways and means of like, yeah, Lister never ended up on this ship mm-hmm. because you know he's actually gone on to he actually became something better in his early life and didn't end up on Red Dwarf, so. Instead of having a Dave Lister on board, there could have been a you know I don't know Jeff Smith, like somebody else ended up in right. Dave Lister's position because Dave never got to that point. Um, but it's almost like they want to tell certain things that they want to have a, an alternate, um, you know, an alternate Dave Lister there, but they don't, they don't do anything with it. Yeah. I think that's one of the sort of frustrating things I feel with this episode is they they never do anything that sort of seems interesting with the alternate versions of him they get blown they literally get blown up within a couple of minutes and yeah it, it just feels like a wasted opportunity yeah and i think that you you've kind of isolated on that again and again you know sort of like how good are these alternate versions of the crew members and mm. you know I, I i think you're quite right to to judge that um and i and i think that you know really some of the best episodes are episodes where you know, we see Ace Rimmer or we see, you know, an alternate version that is really successful. Um, I do think you're right that uh, time slides uh, with the sort of altering the past is a lot more imaginative. I mm. think that some of the stuff that I like best in this episode is not actually, you know, the alternate Dave Lister, um, but or even the central premise, but the whole appearance of Crichton and, and Lister out of sequence, that whole kind of, you know, future echoes thing, which mm. I think Grant and Ayler do so well. Um, that kind of thing just delights me where, you know, it's like, okay, no, Crichton has, has seen his own demise and it's just <laughs> adamant, like, no, we can't change this. This is just going to happen. Um, and of course they get out of it by the end, but um but uh, but only you know in a very clever way by by using the glove on uh, you know the the monster himself, um, which you know is easy, but it, it still works. Mm. But you know, for me, that stuff, the sort of like time paradox stuff, is more successful and just more fun. And it's so you know, in a half hour episode, that comes along like kind of halfway through, and you're thinking, you know. How how are they gonna you know connect to this? How are they gonna get out of this? Um, and it's it's very funny, but it also keeps that kind of like unbelievably kind of frenetic fast pace of the episode. And I think those are some of my favorite episodes. So that stuff mm. works for me, maybe better even than the central premise. Yeah, no, I agree actually because I do like that scene when uh, they're cornered and sort of uh, Crichton appears from the future and sort of says you know ah oh, now uh, yes what do I do now and he sort of like you say, he's completely he's completely fine with having his head crushed into a wall because he's already seen it happen. Um, I think what's interesting, one of the things I was going to point out with this because I had to watch it. I watched it back again because it creates a bit of a. Um, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's quite a bootstrap par- paradox, but Crichton obviously comes back with one of the gauntlets. Um, you know, one of the Inquisitor's gauntlets because that's what he uses for time travel. Um, and then uses a um, let's call it, a, call it a laser chainsaw to cut off the Inquisitor's other glove, mm-hmm. um, and then passes that to um, 
the pre- to the present uh, Crichton and Lister. So you then have a period of two gloves. Um, you have a period of two gloves of being in the same time zone, and they, one of them, and then has to be handed back to Crichton to go back round in that circle. Um, and I just again, I sort of find that weird because you do have that sort of paradox end of like, well, there's two gloves in the time the same time frame, but then one of them's got to be taken to go back into the cycle. So it's almost like, well. Is that the same glove going round and round in circles, or is that? Do they always swap? And you know, it's just, I know it sounds daft. It's a really sort of silly little thing to get hooked up on. But I was just sort of, I was just sort of, um, it just, yeah, it was just interesting to me because at the end of the day, they take the other one off them, don't they? Take the other one off um, the Inquisitor because they end up with the two of them. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, I don't I know. Mean, it, it just sort of. But that gets at, like, you know, we've had lots of conversations about kind of, like, how does time travel work, right? Mm. And, you know, I quite like the deterministic model, and, and that's part of why I'm so charmed by Crichton watching his own death and just saying, oh, it's going to happen. Um, you know, he obviously, which is so strange, because the first two seasons use that deterministic model, and then season three of the changes so much just blows that up. Um, but yet, in this episode, Crichton is absolutely believes it's a deterministic uh, universe vis-a-vis time travel. And that needs to be the case to have that bootstrap bootstrap paradox, as you uh, point out. But then the entire episode is based on altering time (laughs) (laughs) in, in the traditional sort of like, well, yeah, you can really alter time kind of way. So both modes of time travel are working in this episode simultaneously, you know, and of course that's common to, you know, Star Trek and Doctor Who and and, and things like that. But um, yeah, it is, it is paradoxical. It's not as careful with time travel as, as earlier stuff is. No. And I think this one in particular, they they don't really want you to question, like say the wider scheme of things, the wider impact. Because again, sort of the, the one of the main points of this is, um, he has gone through time changing reality to alternate versions. So there should be a ripple effect constantly. Mm-hmm. There should be a constant ripple effect of, um, if anything, actually, as well, because one of the points we should make is, um, you know, changing one person in time, you know, you or I or whatever, has a massive ripple effect because, you know, what, you know, whether you have children or whether you sort of, it could be as big as like, you know, the children that you have, it could be as little as, Someone you accidentally bump into in a you know in a situation that then alters their their path over their day or whatever. Right. Um, if you don't do that, then the knock on effects is that butterfly effect, isn't it? Um, and so yeah, you, you know he could be changing people left, right, and center. That it should be having a constant ripple effect through time. Um, and so yeah, the, the Inquisitor never sort of it works as a great monster of the week villain. Yes. You know, and he looks great and. And so, but it, ne- it never works for me as a, as a as an actual concept. No, I think that, I think that makes perfect sense, and I, and I think that I I kind of found myself thinking, how long has he been doing this? <laughs> yeah. Because you know, it's like all of maybe he's responsible for the the continuity change between seasons two and three, but you know, I I sort of find myself thinking like, uh, obviously Crichton tells this myth of. this android at the end of time who decides there's no god um you know notice he doesn't say silicon heaven right um but this does seem a very sort of um 
red dwarf uh, villain to come up with. It does seem very hitchhikers. You know, I, I, I like that idea quite a bit. But I do sort of find myself, as you say, kind of wondering, like, how long has he been doing this? Has all of the show been kind of like one iteration mm. after he's already zapped lots of people out of the time stream? In which case, why does it go back to normal? Um, you know, obviously, if Crichton has some uh, sort of, you know, there's some sort of robot myth about this this particular robot at the end of time. Um, I mean, we're, we're sort of left to believe that the status quo on Red Dwarf was always the case, right? Prior to the yeah. robot doing anything. And he's been going around zapping people out of the time stream and replacing them, which has had absolutely no effect on Red Dwarf or anything until this episode starts, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then yeah. it has massive effects and then he's defeated. And I, I think that gets at what you're saying. Like the central concept sort of, it's clever, but it doesn't quite work. Yeah, it's, 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 it's been thought of for a single episode, but never quite thought, thought through as if it was going to be a full concept. Um I mean, even even within its, within its own logic, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, um, you know, the Inquisitor kills um, Crichton and, and um, Crichton and List. Uh, Crichton, sorry, and, and, and no, is it Rimmer and the Cat get mm-hmm. killed? Right. Um, and then you've seen other things. And when they do defeat the Inquisitor, they return back as normal. However, the remains of <laughs> yeah. Lister List are still there. They use it for a great, you know, like a little gag at the end. But um, it's like, well, no. If they, if he's brought, if it's brought, if it's readjusted the time, the timeline, those remains shouldn't exist anymore. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But, and and you know, and they do have a little fun at the end with sort of like Lister, you know, you know, sort of like they know that this is illogical, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. just a fun little farcical thing. I mean, you know, Lister has the Inquisitor, Inquisitor hanging over a chasm, then burns the rope and catches it, saves the Inquisitor's life. So that if Lister is ever erased, the Inquisitor would die. And the Inquisitor very quickly says, yes, but if you were erased, I won't need to have my life saved. Saved, yeah. Uh, you know, which is like, oh, okay. You know, like that's that's clever. But it, again, it's like one version of how time travel works that's incommensurate with them remembering the previous time stream and the body mm-hmm. still being there. You know, and, and there are things like that that while clever sort of, you know, you have this voice in the back of your head saying, I don't think they fully thought this through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a monster of the week. I mean, I actually think more than the time travel and the sort of the replacement, the the key concept they seem to quite like is this idea of being judged by yourself. Yes, absolutely. I, that, I was going to say, like, in addition to sort of uh, what you were saying about be careful what you wish for, right? Giving the characters mm. fulfillment and then, or, or alternate versions of themselves, um, or sort of time paradoxes. Certainly one of the tropes of uh, Red Dwarf is this idea of being judged by yourself. Um, and, and, and I was going to say, like, you know, didn't we just see this in Justice? And yeah. it wasn't uh, Rimmer and the Cat who were uh, justified by their own low standards, right? There it was Rimmer who felt guilty and was sentenced. So the show is just, you know, it's having fun, but it's not trying to be consistent, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Like before, you say before, sort of like Rimmer was was judged by his own guilt for what happened to Red Dwarf. But now it's sort of, 
well, actually, you know, they've actually, by their own low standards, they've, you know, they're able to acquit themselves. But I don't think that we've we've almost seen that that's not the case. Exactly. Uh, with, with Rimmer, because we know that his own self-loathing is the fact that he hasn't acquitted himself, but even <laughs> by his own low standards, and he he doesn't believe in those low standards because he feels like he deserves more. So, um, again, like you know, I like the idea of it, and I like the way it plays out. I mean, especially like cats. Um, when Cat is judged by himself, yeah, that's that's, that's incredible. You know, that, like you say, he's a very sort of shallow character, but that's sort of you know necessary for the character it's actually a part of it sort of you know ju- justify yourself he's like i've brought pleasure to the world because i've got a beautiful ass uh-huh. that's it and you're like oh, okay and I, I just like the fact that he gets away with that because that's all he's expected to be able to do he's like is that what you got like, you want more um <laughs> so yeah i i think it's a great concept and it's true i mean when they do again again the sort of the weird thing of this is I do believe that Lister does acknowledge that, you know, for all his slobbiness and all this other stuff, like, you know, he does sort of know he could be better, but can't be asked. Yeah. Um. So I accept that. I'll accept that he probably would judge himself a little harshly or, or harshly in this situation. If he was to be looking at somebody else that did that, a bit like, you know, when you go into, um, into parallel, um, was it the parallel universe? You know how he feels about the female version of Lister, sort of a similar thing of oh, oh yeah, yeah. such a slob. Like yeah. that's probably how it would be. But I still struggle with Crichton because they keep, yes. although he's a he's a mechanoid, they keep giving him sort of humanistic qualities. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, I know he's broken his programming, but he's still going to be sort of judging himself on the fact. Well, actually, I think that's pretty good that I've broken my programming and I can do these things. So, yeah. It's sort of interesting concept, but I'm not sure if it plays out. I don't know what your thoughts are. No, I mean, I I agree with you. And and I was going to zero in on Crichton and say, I mean, why? I mean, why does Crichton condemn himself? He he says, like, I was good, but only because of my programming. So therefore, I deserve to be erased. Well, you know, I mean, we all have programming, right? I mean, we all Mm. have instincts in our brain. I mean... And does that mean that any robot or any android who's ever judged by the android inquisitor also would find themselves not worthy? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. If, yeah, is, is that the point? Like, you know, is it because... Because he actually said, like, you broke your programming, you could have done better. But then he says, but you've you've done all these good acts. And he says, well, that, those good acts were a part of my programming. But you're like, well, that doesn't devalue them, them at all, does it? Really? Right, right. If you, if you, you know, I mean, if you want to take it to an extreme, you could say that, you know, if you were a devout Christian um, and you do a number of good acts, you know, you could say, well, that's actually part of your, you know, your programming. You, you, you are programmed to do good acts because it's what you are. Your worldview tells you to do. Right. You know, you, you are. Do- if I'm really wanting to be cynical, you're doing it because you want to get into heaven, whether it be silicon heaven or or human heaven. So. Yeah, you know, you could have done so much more, but you didn't because you, your programming told you to do this. It's 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 a bit odd. It seems a bit, so you say. Um, yeah, it's not very convincing. No. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I don't like is is the sort of um, I, I I like the cleverness of the gauntlet at the end. I don't like how its polarities have re- been reversed, 
And it, it just made me instantly think, oh, Superman 2, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. this, this sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, getting rid of your powers. Oh, I just reversed the polarities. How in the world does that work? Uh, but whatever. I mean, I, I think it's clear as kind of an episode that combines a whole bunch of tropes that have been done better in other episodes all together mm-hmm. in a kind of like new formulation that is just having fun. And it doesn't take itself kind of as seriously as, you know, like Justice is a better episode, you know, overall. Mm -hmm. But it's also better at um, the sort of self-judgment trope. But uh, this manages to combine that with, you know, time travel and uh, paradoxes and other stuff and and alternate versions of the characters. Yeah, it makes me think. I mean, you know, we're actually going to talk about alternate t- two twice more in this series. We're going to talk about alternate versions of the characters. Um, it makes me wonder because obviously they put limitations on themselves by saying there are no aliens in this universe. Um, you know, so they haven't got the, the they haven't got the potential to have that Star Trek moment of like you know we found an M class planet and then we're going to go off and do this thing. It's it almost seems like you know they are very sort of stuck in this this cycle of okay what what can we what can we do with these characters in you know by base and all they could do is what other costumes can we put these characters in sort of thing um i don't know it just seems a little bit like we're getting to that territory now with in this series like you say we we get demons and angels and back to reality where we do end up sort of seeing just again sort of you know go through that sort of element of self-judgment you know what's good and what's bad and what, what do we deem ourselves to be about? Right. Or it could yeah. be a theme. I don't know. No, I, yeah, I think so. And it, it does. I think you're right that not having access to all of the usual panoply of aliens sort of encourages alternate versions of the main characters. <laughs> um, there is this way in which all of Red Dwarf is kind of defined by that kind of like funhouse mirror thing, right? <laughs> that, mm you know, the central idea of them being the only people in the universe, which I don't buy for a second. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, once you've got Gelfs and you've got aliens and I mean, you've got androids, you know, you can say it's a a lifeless universe, but, you know, I mean, I know they're all created by humans in some sense, but um, the effect is essentially the same in the writing. It's like saying we have no superheroes, we just have mutants. Okay, well, yeah. you know, the effect is the same. Um, but but yeah, there is this kind of like funhouse mirror thing of not only do you get alternate versions, but that's also part of them being secluded, you know, that, that all you have are those main characters and we're going to run through permutations. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the things, <coughs> it's sort of, it's, again, it's sort of, it's it, they have it in, season four and they have it in season five it's sort of it's becoming this thing now because they do keep mentioning every now and then they'll drop it in that they are still three million years into deep space yet there are still um (laughs) it's all over the place in season six uh but there are still sort of like human technologies on planets or just what you know just floating in space and they're like oh man yeah we're so far from earth and i'm thinking you can't be that far from earth because you've come across (laughs) You've come across a planet, you know, you've come across a, a human ship with a DNA changing machine. Yes. You've come across, a, a, you know, um, a, a prison planet, you know, you've come across a, an entertainment planet with wax droids on it. Um, 
you've come across a hollow ship, and now you've, you know, in those, in a quarant- a terraform. The planet's a Simon. It was built to be a Simon. Like, you know, no one, you know, it's. And in quarantine, we'll get into quarantine in a minute. Like, again, they come across um, a, a, a science outpost. You think, how far out have they gone? How far out did the human race go that they seem to be so worried about getting back to Earth? Right. And if that's true, then. Um... You know, uh, then why are they the last humans? I mean, if if human civilization got three million years out, right? Mm. I mean, even assuming that the Red Dwarf was not traveling all that fast, um, you know, and that future technology would be able to speed up that time. Still, I mean, if, if they've gotten that far out, yeah, I mean, you're not the last humans. I mean, there's there's something out there right yeah exactly i think that's the thing isn't it and so like i think they almost did sort of they committed to this thing of of not doing aliens and alien technology but sort of almost painted themselves into a bit of a corner didn't they so they have to make up all these other things and just hope that no one questions why there's a gelf settlement Mm -hmm. on a on a moon somewhere right Um, 2.99 million years away from earth right yeah yeah exactly yeah so yeah, so again, but let's say getting into that. So getting into quarantine, then, which is exactly as I say, they they find a, a science outpost, um, and this is this is a we've talked about themes and some of the bits and pieces before, but this is just a fun episode. Like this is a really daft episode that I I do thoroughly enjoy actually. Um, you know, simple concept. It's, it's a really sort of. It's almost like a Simpsons episode. Like it starts with one thing and ends up just such trundling into something else. <laughs> um, in that they go to a site. This thing they find a, a um, Dr. Hildegard Langstrom, who has got a hollow virus, um, and uh, they also find a series of illnesses, positive viruses. Um, Interesting, considering we are, we are doing, we're going to talk talk about the episode quarantine and, and viruses at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's just sort of a really daft episode, and I think this is one of those episodes when they are just sort of like, we're not going to go highbrow, we're not going to introduce any concepts, we're just going to be silly. Um, and this, but this episode does lay the groundwork for a couple of things. But yeah, what are your thoughts on on quarantine? Uh, I like it. I it's not one of my favorites. Um, you know, I I think it's sort of uh, middling. Um, you know, it might be one of my least favorites um, of uh, the entire show so far. I still think it's got great moments. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even just at the start, the you know the hilarious series of kind of dusty warning signs, including a triangle with a man <laughs> getting his guts ripped out. You know, it's like <laughs> so hilarious to me. Uh, you know, I laughed out loud at that. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think it's kind of um, you know, if one of the things that I think as a, as a writer watching Red Dwarf is sort of seeing what's successful, seeing these tropes, seeing how how brilliantly executed they often are, what works and what doesn't, but how at what a high level these kinds of scripts are firing. And I think this is sort of a another kind of bottle episode like Marooned. I think mm-hmm. Marooned works better, but but both are interesting and I think they kind of demonstrate how you can do a bottle episode or you can do an episode that's really pretty talky, you know, um, 
you know, where one of, one of the main special effects is like, you know, a silly polka dot dress for, uh, <laughs> for Rimmer, you know, um, you know, and, and, and have it work. It works as a basic episode, you know, as a, as a structure for an episode that can get at something or have some really delightful aspects. And I think that's impressive for a bottle episode. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think I think maybe it does it. It works as like a series of skits, doesn't it? It's sort of um, you know, it's less of a plot and a series of sort of moments. I think really, um, but I, I do. I just think some of the jokes in this really do work. For me. As you said, the sort of the sign, the signs, but even the bit after that with the size scan, which is like a clear dig. There's some clear. It's at this point they start to make some little digs. I think at things like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you've got Crichton almost becoming like the Spock type character, and he has the psi scan, which is sort of, um, you know, they, they see the sign and it says "gross, most gross danger, uh, viral infections, all this other stuff," and it's like, you know, because well, they haven't got any sort of anything on; they've just got their normal clothes, and this, it's not working. So he has to turn around, and he hits it, and he's sort of like, you know, it's surprising. It, it beats um, the next model up eight times out of ten. Um, and lots of other stuff, and then finally, it's sort of like it's working. It's like, and we're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, and sort of, I just love how rinky dink it is, and they acknowledge it. They're sort of like, you know, we're a real Mickey Mouse operation. The uh, <laughs> cast, <laughs> Mickey Mouse. We're not even Betty Boop. Um, and it is. It's just a great um, dig at that sort of like you know the generic size scan that sort of like will then get used and they do there's the generic technology you know they've had the matter paddle they've now got the size scan and just this stuff of it can scan anything and give you an answer you know it's the sort of uh the sonic screwdriver of red dwarf isn't it there's always a piece of technology that can sort of that, that can answer them um, right or the tricorder you know in star trek exactly, right? they just yeah. hold it up and it's like oh there's no life signs here. How how does this detect life signs, especially of like a yeah. silicon life form? You yeah. know what what is this doing? <laughs> um, and I I do like that in science fiction when they do have that sort of like you know the generic answer all technology. Um, but the the other good thing that I think this this episode does introduce, and you sort of mentioned it, you mentioned it before, is this introduces the uh, space core directives. Yeah. Um, this is the episode where, where you know, you've actually, I think, I think uh, Crichton may have mentioned one or two already because they're sort of laying the groundwork. Um, but then this is where Cr- uh, Rimmer gets given a copy of it yes. uh, for him to study at his leisure. And so from this point on, you have him misquoting Space Corps directives, which um, becomes a bit more of a running joke in, in season six, but is a, is a very good joke. And I, I do like that they introduced that as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's fun. I mean, it works. Uh, you know, I like that. I do kind of feel as if uh, we were talking about alternate versions of the characters. And I, and I think that you're right to kind of isolate on that and, and, and judge an episode by how um, fun those alternate versions are. I feel as if Rimmer should be a lot more fun crazy. You know, he should mm-hmm. not look like a princess on a toadstool who just, you know... Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel as if, you know, uh, Rimmer is so much fun in other episodes that sort of seeing him crazy could really be played up more than it is. I, I agree. And having, yeah, having seen sort of, like you say, the, the, um, 
how much talent Chris Barry has to do those kinds of things. So I do think, yeah, it's a, again a bit of a missed opportunity. But I do, I do like the way he plays it though when he sort of gives the story about going to see the King of the Potato People on a flying carpet, um, and, and almost uses it to sort of like to bait them into sort of acknowledging that they are crazy, um, <laughs> and so it's, it's it's very good. Um, and I, I just remember sort of like, I, I remember back to first seeing this. And just being, you know, just really wanting my own Mister Flibble, because <laughs> <laughs> I just like it. Sort of like, you know, yes, um, the way he talks to him, and Mr. I mean, even the fact that Mister Flibble gets hex vision uh, at the end and stuff is yeah, that's so does, bizarre, yeah. right? I mean, it's just yeah, like Red yeah. Dwarf just having fun, right? Like the sock puppet. This is the sock puppet on Rimmer's hand, right? You know, oh, Mister yeah. Flibble. No. Yes. But more than that, the things remind the thing to remember is Rimmer's a hologram, so he has requested or has sort of like engineered this costume and a hand puppet. So yes, it's uh, yes, I I I, I yeah, I, I just think it's uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's a series of skits um, that um, and it introduces some daft even like the look virus, um, you know is. Uh, it's not played to make any sense, is it? Like, there's not supposed to really be. Um, it, it, you know, it never comes up again, and there's so right. many opportunities when they're like, "Oh, that would have been really useful to have in the future." <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, and it, the, and the it doesn't really make sense future. either, right? No, I mean, no. you know, luck is. You know, I, I I always had this objection to like. Uh, scarlet witch and x-men or something you know like mm. luck is not a physical you know thing that exists in the universe there's not a uh luck tachyon or something that the you know a <laughs> virus yeah. is altering mm. um but I, I wanted to zero in on uh, on what you were saying about kind of like making fun of star trek and you know sort of the tricorder and you're absolutely right and i think that one of the things that this series does so well and i think it's illustrated in this episode um were was sort of making fun of Star Trek or breaking the Star Trek formula in in two particular ways, and one is that um, that uh, we're watching sort of the lower deck characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not watching the captains. I mean, we very we briefly see them in the first episode, but you know, we're really watching the dregs, you know. Yes, uh, yeah. and and having a show that stars the dregs instead of you know the captain going on these brave adventures is, is a lot of the fun of, of this show and it's dynamic. Um, and ironically, I mean, you know, at this point we're in 1992, but I, ironically that same concept would later be used on next generation, which was running at the mm. same time with its episode lower decks. And now is going to be an animated show called star Trek lower decks, kind of focusing on the same thing. No doubt not as cynical as Red Dwarf. Um, <laughs> and, and the other thing that it breaks the mold with um, is the making the characters um, mean and unlikable. And mm. that is that was also just against Roddenberry's rules. And so um, obviously we, we have Star Trek has done that too, right? Um, so Star Trek has kind of taken 20 years to catch up to Red Dwarf. And now you can watch Red Dwarf and say, oh, yeah, you know, like I, I saw this on Discovery, you know, I saw this on uh, Deep Space Nine a little, uh, you know, and um, 
now uh, it's kind of caught up. But at the time, it was mind blowing. And especially for mm. me, um, that's that was really just shocking and mind blowing. And, you know, so I do love the way the episode ends, although it's a bit of a gag. But, you know, like them having escaped quarantine and putting Rimmer in quarantine, you know, citing <laughs> the, you know, space fleet directives. And uh, the the idea is so clear that they just intend to torture him. There is, they yes. don't believe <laughs> in this directive at all. This is not for medical reasons. This is just to torture Rimmer and get him back. And the sheer pettiness of that, the sheer, the, the very un-Roddenberry pettiness of that is so charming to me. I want, it makes me wonder, actually, do you ever think like, Gene Roddenberry ever saw an episode of Red Dwarf? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I, I would have to imagine he did, but uh, who yeah. knows? But, I mean, he he was always rejecting these same elements in the TV show. I mean, you know, when he died, uh, the writers on Next Generation and uh, Deep Space Nine, which was in progress, were quite happy in a sense. I mean, they loved him, mm. but they were always chafing against these rules, uh, especially that you couldn't really have the Federation be mean. Uh, you know, the you know, how do you write a story with conflict where the central premise is they this is an enlightened civilization that has no need for money and everybody works as a team and they do it because they love it. well that's that's hard uh it's kind of like how do you write conflict in a utopia Uh, yeah i i actually uh, from an anecdotal point i actually uh read a short anecdote of um patrick stewart um was obviously working in america when he was he was was picard Mm -hmm. um and he he came across an episode of red dwarf i think he said it was it was from season three or four because it was before the uh before the 90s it must have been sort of season three and four and he he says he watched it and was and was so um convinced that that it had sort of it was poking fun and ripping off star trek that he apparently called his agent and was like have you heard of this red dwarf and his agent was like yeah you should watch more of it patrick it's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) and apparently he did he carried on watching it and he, he is quite a fan so um that's that. I just thought it was interesting that sort of like you know even like sort of uh, Patrick Stewart had seen this and made that connection quite quickly, having sort of like obviously being in in uh, in Star Trek: Next Generation. Right, and and I made that connection as a kid because I grew up on Star Trek. I mean, by the time mm. I was watching Red Dwarf, I had seen you know I'm sure every class. I hadn't seen the animated series, but I had seen every classic episode. I had seen every Next Generation episode to date many times i mean i had guidebooks and you know Mm. uh guides to the planets of star trek and you know i was very nerdy uh i may have even been to a star trek convention at that point so for me red dwarf was worked much more obviously as as a sort of star trek parody and that was one way that i could kind of make sense of this bizarre british show on which nothing made sense (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Well, it's true. I mean, let's say we'll get into the next two episodes, but again, talk, talk about not making sense. Uh, angels and de- uh, sorry, demons and angels. Um, uh, the next episode, so episode five, is a- another episode where they sort of they just take a concept and run with it. Um, and it, it, in this episode, they get they have a thing called it's um, the triplicator. They can take an item and then they can make two more of it, 
Uh, and in doing so, they find out that one is is, is perfect and, and pure, and the other one's rancid and horrible. Mm-hmm. And just and just due due to science gobbledygook, the the triplicator. Um, but they have an issue with it. They try to send off, and it ends up blowing up Red Dwarf. Uh, but in doing so, actually triplicates it. So the original gets blown up, and you get two versions. You get the the, the, the beautiful sort of version and a really like crappy version. Um, and you, again, you get some alternate versions of the characters in this. And I just want to say, I think this this episode really does again hit home the fact that there is more fun to be had in being mean and cynical, and that's where <laughs> I think this, this, this show goes. But what, what are your thoughts on Demons and Angels? Uh, I like this a lot. Um, you know, this is a uh, highlight of the season for me. Um, you know, uh, certainly in the the top three. Um, and, and I think that, you know, my negative impression of it is that, like, once again, it runs with a concept, but I find myself thinking, like, well... You know, it it is a little sort of like mirror universe you know, sort of like, well, um, it's down to the fact that the good Red Dwarf, like, has brightly lit corridors and everybody is, you know, and it's a lot of fun. But I do sort of find myself thinking, like, well, you know, how does this device know that bright corridors are good and, you know, uh, <laughs> ugly uh, falling apart uh, equipment is bad? Um but whatever. I mean, it's a lot of fun. And I think that it it also illustrates the fact that the stuff that I, I loved so much about Red Dwarf was that it was actually, at its heart, good science fiction. And I think that mm-hmm. the episodes that I like the most sort of mix the science fiction and comedy in a nice way. And while I don't really, you know, I'm not in love with the triplicator idea. Um, it is also very Star Trek, right? With all these, you know, teleporter yeah. accidents and everything, you know. Oh, it made an evil uh, copy of somebody. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, the one of the best moments for me is when uh, you sort of realize that, uh, you know, the crew is reproduced. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay. You know, the entire crew has also been reproduced. And there's this great moment when Red Dwarf explodes before you know that it, the triplicator has produced those other ships. And mm. that to me is just one of those like dramatic moments. Like we're halfway through an episode or, or 10 minutes into an episode or something. And Red Dwarf has exploded. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's that sense of like anything can happen on this show. What kind of show does that? Uh, I just love that. I mean, to me, I am so thrilled every time you, you just screw with the central notion of the show. It did. It did. It throws you a curveball all the time. So I, I remember seeing this. this you know, I, do, I seeing it this time. I did get that flashback of like, oh my god, yeah, they just blew up Red Dwarf. <laughs> um, and they legitimately did. You know, piece of trivia. They had to film everything for the series for all the sort of the model shots, because when that thing blows up, that is the model that they have been using for several series, and they actually blew it up. Yeah. Um, wow. So it, yeah, and it was incredibly difficult. So. There's a there's a reason that season six is the way it's, it is. So we'll get onto that in a minute. But I did not um, realize that 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 is yeah. fascinating. Um, and so yeah, but it does. It, it's a great concept because it does. It, it sort of throws you because they escape onto Starbug and you're like, oh my god, that's that's it. Then they're on Starbug. Um, but again, sort of like you know, it 
it's it's a it's a fun concept. The, the the fun comes from sort of seeing how sort of the writers perceive that sort of purity and perfection and and, and depravity and stuff. Um, and I kind of like sort of because um, it, it is silly and it's quite shorthand. But when they go on to the sort of the purity ship, when they go on the mm. good ship, mm-hmm. and, and they have to they go to dinner and they have this sort of like series of in, this whole thing of interpretive of interpretive dance, <laughs> and it's. Um, it's sort of about the, the notion of searching for truth. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's just sort of like it's ridiculous. Um, you know, sort of Rimmer, sort of this this sort of monk, sort of uh, dressed um, Rimmer, sort of like you know, in anguish at the fact he sort of sort of like he can't find truth, and Lister's there, sort of like reading out the the poetry narration. It's it's brilliant. It's really silly, like it makes no sense, but it's um. Uh, you know, cause I mean, in, in, for all intents and purposes, if this is if this has done that sort of if the triplicator, the good and the bad of each of them, then surely they should each be different. Right, right. Yeah, they're not. They, the good, the the good are all sort of like basically sort of like Buddhist monk kind of looking dudes. Yeah, I mean they they should all be different, but they instead they've like fallen into some sort of cult. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, both of those versions, the good and the bad. I mean, the bad are more fun, but. Um, you know, both of those versions here work. And here is an episode where the alternate versions of the, of the crew work for me, the, the good, the goody goodies, mm. the funniest stuff with them is like, uh, you know, Oh, he's accidentally shot me. He's, I mean, he's accidentally shot me three more times. Malfunction. It keeps misfiring. <laughs> right. And you know, uh, there's also the moment where he says, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I've, I've seemed to have stained your knife with my blood. Yeah. <laughs> the sort of, you know, parody of, uh, you know, well, it, it really is a kind of parody of the sort of Christian turn the other cheek, right? Assume mm. the best in people. And I mean, it's a parody, but, but it also illustrates, well, if somebody really meant that, they would not be able to function in this world, right? I mean, if you treated yeah. everybody as yourself and gave them the benefit of the doubt and, uh, and um, you know, treated the love your neighbor as yourself, you would wind up in some very preposterous situations. <laughs> yeah, um, and they are interesting. I say the good characters and, and um, you know, but they're, they're not the most interesting because when you get to meet the bad characters... Um, <laughs> Again, like you say, you know, they do their bit. I think sort of um, there's a, there's a couple of interesting things here. Sort of, so um, I like the fact that sort of you know, Crichton, they dirtied up Crichton, and he's clearly a bit broken. Um, you know, List is more seedy, but I think this comes down. If I'm perfectly honest, I think what this sort of comes down to is the limitations of the actor. You mm. know, I mean, don't forget that before all this, like Chris, this was Craig Charles when he sort of started this. It was his first acting gig. Um, he was a sort of an alternative comic and a, and a and a poet, you know, and sort of a little bit. So he wasn't wasn't an actor, um, and so I don't think he's got the range to do some of these things. So when they sort of give him an alternative version, like it's quite a limited, you know, he, he's he's just basically a dirtier version of of of, uh, of Lister. Yeah. Um, uh, the, and again, you know, we, you get to see who the true actor is in this. And I know it's a bit of a Chris Barry loving, but Chris Barry is the alternate <laughs> Rimmer. Yes, and the fact is 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 wonderfully depraved, <laughs> and Chris and Chris Barry is clearly really enjoying himself, um, taking oh, yes. it all the way with his character. 
No, I agree with that. And I think the weakest elements of the bad cast are sort of like where you think, oh, yeah, that's a punk version of Crichton. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and and I do sort of, you know, wonder like, oh, is punk bad? Um, mm. You know, Rimmer is sort of a, a punk in stockings with a electro whip and, and, you know, he's having a lot of fun. It's just absolutely great. It makes an impression right away. And I think like, you know, has this aged well? Like, it's so much fun. But then I also wonder, like, yo, you couldn't do this today. Uh, first of all, it's one thing to kind of suggest that the bad version of the characters, I mean, they did this on, uh, I think, season two of Stranger Things, where, you know, sort of the bad guys are the punks. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, so that's a problem. But then the dress kind of implies a sort of, like, uh you know, transsexuality or something like this. Um, and that would not be, would not go over today as implying like, oh, the bad version is into some cross-dressing. Um, and then, and then there's a, there's a line where, uh, you know, Rimmer, although so much fun, Rimmer sort of like leans in and, and suggests that he will rape Lister after lashing him <laughs> yeah. within a lynch of his life. I thought, oh, this would not go over today. No, especially not on the BBC. Yeah, it really says we are going to beat you with an inch of your life, and then I'm going to have you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's again. I think the, I mean the costume. Whoever did the costume, that like, they do go all out. I mean, again, like I like it's, it's, it's the little things that I like the fact that like uh, list uh, Rimmer's H is now sort of like a, a skew. You know, yeah. it's clearly sort of like. Um, and he's sort of got the nose piercing, and it's sort of all chained up, and it's it yeah it seems very early nineties sort of yeah sort of maybe not as well uh, informed because um, to, to be honest, like you say, if he was to be dressed if he was to dress like that and do this act, he would he'd be a fantastic cabaret act. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Sort of, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm honest, the worst one I think for is 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 cat. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's clear they're not entirely sure what to have as as the bad side of cat. Like you say, it's just sort of like they just sort of go, oh, it's got to be sort of dark and grungy and and you know metal and sort of kind of that's like. But like you think, well, then the bad side of cat would just be his narcissism just gone absolutely awry. So he wouldn't be, um, you know, the bad side of cat is that sort of like that lustful narcissist. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't be dressed in sort of like you know sort of animal skins and and, and sort of like you know all. Um, um, dirty, unkept, and dirty. Yeah, he wouldn't be that. And it's a, yeah, so it never sort of again. It's one of those. It's a great idea, and I, I do really enjoy it. But um, it, it never fought, You know, again, it's probably not. I'm probably giving it too much thought, but um, yeah, you know, it, it's got some good moments. And again, when they control Rimmer, uh, control Lister, um, you know, there's some 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 good fun moments. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's a kind of mixed bag. Uh, I think you know it. It, uh, it. It's it's never really quite believable, and I think you're right that it comes down to the acting. But there are some fun things. I mean, sort of making him eat the tarantula, and then you know the the fight scene <laughs> where you know Lister being remote controlled yells left, right, you yeah. know, and is calling out what he's about to do and not being able to stop himself. Th- those are those are very fun. Um, you know, and I feel like, I mean, it doesn't need to do the remote control. I mean, that's not important to the plot, um, mm. but it's just having a bit of fun. 
Uh, and some of it works and some of it doesn't, uh, or it doesn't work quite as much. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's another good, fun episode. Don't be wrong. Like I say, I do enjoy the episode. There's some really good jokes in it. Um, it it's just one of those, I think, like you say, it's, it's just there to be sort of a bit, it's it's slightly sort of throwaway, but it's a really good, it's a good, solid episode. Um, yeah. One one last thought about sort of tying tying back into sort of how how does the triplicator know to make the good one pretty and the bad one bad and the good one, you know, have religion and the bad one just kind of punkish and dirty. Um, you know, that's sort of, uh, why do the bad guys want the good ship? It's kind of justified by, Oh, their ship's falling apart because, you know, the triplicator has, has made it poor. But I, I found myself like, kind of annoyed by that sort of in the same way that you were annoyed by and, and i was too with the, the sort of unimaginative take on cat and i thought you know mm. don't they have any pride in being bad you know i you know like they seem utterly unable to repair their own ship they just don't want to take the good one um i don't know i mean it makes sense but it, it seems like there's something that there's a better avenue that could have been taken there do, I'll tell you what, if, if, I'll ask you a question. If this was to be made today, if they were to do this episode again today, how do you think they would represent those two elements? What, the, the bad guys and the good guys? Yeah, the angels and the demons. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it might be much more subjective, right? I mean, like, mm. like, like you were suggesting, like an evil cat might be a cat who is actually extra clean. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, today I think we're much more open to the idea of, you know, the bad guys being, um, not necessarily religious, although sometimes that could be the case, but then being more self-righteous, um, like the, the, the good versions of them are religious, but they don't ever tell you how to behave. The bad mm-hmm. ones, I could e- easily see a version in which the bad ones had sort of more religion. You know, Cat was cleaner. Um, you know, maybe, um, you know, Rimmer, outside of making a, a rape reference, um, you yeah. know, was essentially the same, you know. But uh, where they were a little more self-righteous, a little less desperate to get the good ship, you know. Well, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I say, you'd probably make it a bit more character subjective you know so i think i would see expect you know especially with things like with me too and stuff like you tap into sort of the cat would be that sort of um just lust like i say incredibly narcissistic incredibly clean incredibly sort of like but like really lust driven and, and you know verging on sle- sleazier than he is um but like taking rimmer to the extreme and sort of making him almost like nazi-esque you know almost like a fascist so taking all that sort of pettiness and really pushing it the far um, you know, because it, 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 it'd be their it would be their neuroses and stuff, wouldn't it? So, like, you know, Rimmer, um, would would probably be a lot more efficient because if you sort of, you know, if you could really really go for that kind of sort of just being that petty and narcissist, uh, narcissist sort of just you know, all his neuroses. Um, and Rimmer probably just like if you want to take his he's taking his bad, it is his slobbiness, isn't it? And he's sort of like, you know you'd probably sort of make him really um again this is some subjective and probably not maybe not so politically correct but like 
hugely obese and sort of, you know, sort of like, you know, one of those sort of like, you know, having to clean himself with a sponge on a stick or something like that. Like, you know, he just cannot be bothered. So he's just laying in bed and everything, sort of like just eating curries and sort of like, you know, that sort of thing. Sort of, you do something, I think, really sort of weird. And that's, you know, go, go that sort of. That, that, that's in my head. The good would be, the other way would be, if anything, I'd also suggest that, I, mean, I think they almost tap into it in this. It's like, do you know what? If we had the good ship, we could probably get home really quick because everything yeah. worked. Um, and so the good rimmer could probably be in a version of Ace Rimmer and, you know, those sorts of things. And um, I don't know. I would I would just make it less sort of less generic and more specific, I think, to those characters. Right. Um, I, th- I think you're right. I, I do kind of I do kind of wonder in the same way that I'm puzzled by when they start repeating themselves and I start thinking like, well, this wasn't the way they judge themselves in justice. Um, mm-hmm. You brought up Ace Rimmer and I, and I thought the same thing. I thought like, oh, well, we're getting a, a better version of Rimmer. Didn't we already get that? And wasn't that other one more interesting? Yeah, it is. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's not as the, you know, it's not as good as things that have gone before, isn't it? And that's the sort of thing where, um, and if anything, we're going to get to uh, in series six. We are definitely going to get to an episode where there's talk of like, oh, okay, best greatest hits, you know, sort of thing. Bring some, bringing some bits back, which is a bit, uh, you know, desperate. But um, yeah, so that's that's demons and angels. So we round out the series then with with back to reality. Which, if you were to go on any Red Dwarf fan site or any Red Dwarf poll, this would appear in. A lot of top five episodes, no doubt. This would definitely appear in a lot of top five episodes. And so, back to reality, they come across another uh, scientific outpost. Um, <laughs> this time underwater, uh, and whilst underwater, the the uh, starboard gets attacked by a uh, a squid, uh, and this squid's ink fires ink, and it fires it sort of it, it affects you. And it's called the despair squid, so it makes you sort of like live out of a hallucination. Um, that sort of drives you to potential suicide, uh, and in this this sort of joint hallucination, they find that they're back in well, they're back in reality, and that Red Dwarf have been a, a, a game. Um, not only has it been a game, they haven't been playing the game very well. Um, what are your thoughts on Back to Reality, sort of, uh, and uh, this no again this alternative because again we're coming to these alternatives again this mirror universe or this potential that that, that red dwarf has just been a game that they haven't played very well yeah i love this episode i mean i I think everything you're saying is is right i think it's it's great fun i think there's no Mm. doubt that it's you know in the top uh you know the top five or ten without a doubt um i i really love the virtual reality stuff i mean and and i think this is also a sort of like you know, a minor trope in, in Red Dwarf episodes, this sort of like screwing with what your notion of reality is. Uh, but this is maybe the first full flowering of that. Um, you know, I mean, I love the despair squid. I love, you know, uh, you know, Holly calls it, you know, our friend, the suicide squid, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous and wonderful. But when they wake up and, you know, it's another one of those sort of like pull the rug out from under the the viewer where, like exploding red dwarf where you think what is going on? Um, and especially because this is the last episode of the season and, and this is such a, a show that's willing to, to screw with you. You, you know, you could buy that. Oh no, it, this is really, um, 
it really is all a hallucination. It really is all a simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe they'll go back in and maybe they won't, but you could buy the show going in that direction. And it ultimately doesn't, but all the stuff of, um, you know, realizing that they're not playing it well, <laughs> you know, that whole conversation of like, you know, um, you've been playing this game for four years. Um, you know, uh, how did you not figure out that the spare squid, you know, the, the clue was the ship was called the Esperanto. It means hope, you know, you know, like, well, you at least enjoyed Kachansky, didn't you? <laughs> it's like, why? How did you get Kachansky? You know, I have to say Tim, Timothy Spall, uh, is a, is a great British actor. Um, a bit of a national treasure. I think he's great in loads of things he's been in, but he is fantastic in this. Let's say just as that, like the brummy sort of, uh, the, the, you know, which is a real sort of proper Birmingham accent, uh, Midlands <laughs> accent near from here. But the fact he is, he's sort of like, you know, when he says about Rimmer as well, he says, he says, Oh, so you must've figured out Rimmer. He's like, Oh yeah, I got him. You got him straight away. And he's like, so you found the micro dot. And he's like the micro dot. And it's this whole story about how he is <laughs> this, you know, it, it's such a computer game thing, isn't it? Sort of like, yes. oh yeah, well, Rimmer's actually an undercover agent, not this idiot. He actually is there to sort of usher in the second Big Bang with, you know, uh, to be created by Lister and uh, all these other ridiculous notions. It's, um, yeah. So much fun. Uh, it's that that whole scene. Um, it, when, he, when he finally said, you, you, you've basically been playing the Pratt version of Rimmer this entire time. <laughs> For four years, right? Yeah. Well, you know, don't yeah. tell me you missed the planet of the nymphomaniacs. Yeah. Right? You know what? And I, I always just like the idea of, like, you know, this idea of if this was to be reality, of him basically going off on his break and talking to his friends in the canteen, but like, you'll never guess what. These guys came out the game today and they've been playing the Pratt versions of themselves for four years. Um, it is, it's, yeah, it's... I, it, it's it's wonderful. I, I just think that whole section is really good. Um, oh yeah, but I, and I, I love it. again. Like the, the, one of the great things this show does is it gives you like it's, it's in many ways it's skits, isn't it? It's sort of moments um, because they're then sort of ushered into another room and sort of when they're told and they're given their sort of their the, this reality's um, this reality's um, p- personalities and identities. Um, I love how the characters react to each and every single one of them. It, it's so mm-hmm. well done. Um, and again, like Rimmer, Rimmers is good, but like, I mean, like Dwayne Dibley is is a classic character. Yeah, and that's I that's like, Cat, uh, uh, you yeah. know, with buck teeth and you know, bowl haircut and, and polyester <laughs> trousers and yeah. Um, and uh, I think this, this is one of like where where Danny John Jules' sort of reactions are, are fantastic. Um, but I. I really like Crichton as well. Sort of like, you know, uh, when he finds out he is he is um, no longer just a mechanoid, he's half human, he's, an, he's sort of a cyborg. He's a police officer called Jake Bullet, which is uh, a, such a, a great macho cop name. Yes. Well, and, and you know, I like the, the fascist stuff. I mean, and, and I think that watching it... Uh, watching this episode, what sticks with me most are these things that we're talking about now, or, or rather, what I love most watching it in the moment are these things. And you know, I mean, seeing the sort of how terrible they are at the game, and mm. you know, and, and it's it, it's always fun watching characters um, 
you know, in a new reality, sort of trying to negotiate this way in a fascist dystopia, you know, so that's fine. I think that what has stayed with me um, thinking about this episode after the fact is the smartness of the sci-fi plot that even Mm. though this is ridiculous, it's this despair squid, right? Um, That it makes sense as a plot that, you know, essentially all of this reality is to get them to commit suicide, just like that crew that they found in the beginning. And, you know, yes, I mean, the way that it's going to this ink does that business is giving them this kind of hopeless scenario in which they hate their true selves, you know, because they're Dwayne Dwibbly, uh, uh, Dibley and, and nonsense like this. Um, but also on the run from, you know, the fascist government and it's hopeless. And you actually watch the characters all line up and put a gun to their head with one bullet to try to yeah. kill themselves. And, you know, and so I think, yes, it's so much fun in the moment. There's all these things that that we remember and love, but it's also a really clever sci-fi episode that's sort of like... Um, the naked time in the original Star Trek and the naked now where you kind of have this, uh, you know, infectious virus or, you know, you, you encounter the, the, uh, you know, here's a constellation class vessel drifting through space. Well, you know, they're not hailing us, you know, and you go on and everybody's dead, you know, what's going on. This is like a really, really well done version of that, but also Mm. funny. Yeah, I mean they do. They, like you said, there's there's moments, and there's there's an absolutely fantastic moment. The way they deal with what could have been a really expensive set piece, and the way they deal with it is great. But I, I like to say they they take those moments of, like you said, sort of the setup of coming across a sort of an abandoned ship, or in this case, like a science outstation or whatever, and then just sort of pushing it a little bit into that funny bit. Because they do, they, they literally come across skeletons of people that have committed suicide. Like, yes. Someone's hung themselves, someone stabbed themselves, or, or well, I can't ask they've done. But they also come across a fish that drowned itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, it, they just take it that little bit further. So because it could be, like you say, quite dramatic and quite horrifying to come across these wasted bodies. You know, oh my god, this is terrible! And this halibut that drowned itself—it's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, from a, from a production point of view and from a sort of a, a filmmaking point of view, I like the fact they say they're, they're, they have this reality that they're in, and um, it's first revealed that they're back on Starbug, <clears throat> and it's all um, it's all. Uh, you know, a hallucination when they are being chased by um, the fascist police and they go through a car chase, an entire car chase <laughs> sequence with the four main characters just sat on four crates in the, in the sort of the, uh, in the central area of Starbug. And they, you know, they're being chased by helicopters. They're being shot at. They go around corners. They go over bumps. That's my favorite bit when they go over speed bumps <laughs> and they do it in turn. It's so brilliantly done that I'm like, yeah, no, they totally believe they're in a car chase. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it, you know, but it's not, it's just Holly trying to call them sort of like saying like, <laughs> what, the, what, what are you doing? Um, but that whole car chase sequence with those crates is, is a highlight for me in, in this episode. Yeah. There's no doubt it's an acting tour de force. And, and I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is another just kind of like uh, so much fun uh, to watch a uh, bit. I, I do start to wonder as they reveal that it's hallucination, 
like you know i always had problems with um like the holodeck and other kind of simulation uh things like that where i think okay so there's a projection of holograms but you're walking let's say two people go off doesn't somebody hit the wall eventually um (laughs) You know, where it's like, okay, they know it's a hallucination, but they're running around the room. You know, they they clearly know where the obstacles are. Um, mm. You know, so it's kind of like, well, could they never leave their own area? How do they, you know, would they, are they really seeing an obstacle there? I mean, I, you know, there there is a kind of like practical thing that, that bugs me, but that's so minor. I mean, it's so much fun to watch. It is, and this is one of those things where they actually they they've addressed this kind of thing uh, elsewhere in other episodes. I mean, you know, it's a similar thing again to sort of um, better than life, isn't it? Where they use in, in in previous and in future episodes, they've used like virtual reality mm-hmm. um, to get around that notion of like, oh yeah, it's virtual reality, so you can just move around. Like, you know, you, you you're not really doing it; it's in your head or whatever. Um, but there there is that the practicality of it. That's definitely. Um, you know, because they do a lot of walking from room to room and all this other stuff. But one of the things that, that sort of this this episode sort of strikes home to me that you, you forget a lot of the time, and like you said, this this whole thing with the car chases, this whole thing's filmed in front of a studio audience. You know, they're doing this. I mean, obviously there'd be different takes, but they're doing this live in front of a studio audience, and so sort of like, um, it it, it you know it goes to show that sort of with the writing, they know the restrictions they've got, and they really do sort of like work try and work within that um to create you know the tension and the, of the moment this ridiculous car chase on these four crates um but yeah it, it's uh um it just seems worth this episode sort of comes together so it's a, it's a really good concept as well because the way um they come out of the uh of the red dwarf reality is that something strikes the uh, something strikes red dwarf the despair squid attacks them and um they just says game over and so you don't know whether they actually survived or what like you don't know what sort of happened on starbuck right. between the attack of the squid and them placing four crates in the middle of a room and, and using them as a car um so it does it really does throw you off the kilter as a viewer that again sort of like just like you said red dwarf being blown up in the, in the previous episode that you just shown like you know all you are shown on full screen is that sort of game over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, super ambitious. It's beautiful. I mean, I I'm yeah. I'm a, I just thrill to stuff like that. That just hits me. You know, for me that that kind of like screwing with the with the audience, screwing with the format of the show, um, just is so exciting to me every single time. Mm. And I like the fact he gets to see sort of like into um, you know like a another viewing machine and he goes in and sees he can view other people playing the game and he yeah. sees like a, the other people playing a better version of the game somewhat like another version of lister that's actually actually saved kachansky and all that kind of thing yeah there's there's that uh you know red dwarf i mean there's the red dwarf there's that uh rick and morty episode where they go to the arcade and uh you know Rick, uh, you know, Morty is plugged into the virtual reality game where he like, you know, he uh, lives his whole life and he dies by falling off, reaching for a carpet at this used carpet place. And Morty says, you know, you got cancer and you went back to the carpet store. <laughs> like You've been playing the worst version of this game. And that's straight off of uh, Back to Reality. Mm. 
Yeah, so so you can see that this this series has definitely influenced and inspired um, other creators, most definitely. Um, I, I did wonder. To... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you say. Well, I did wonder. You know, there's we've seen lots of variant versions of these characters, but uh, knowing that there was an American uh, an attempt to launch an American version of Red Dwarf, this is the only episode where I think. Oh, is this a reference to that? Um, <laughs> where you see the other characters playing Red Dwarf, and it seems like, oh, they're American, uh, and uh, no, they're not American. I, I doubt they flew people from America to cast yeah. this. But you know, they seem very clean cut and normal, and not uh, yeah. Wayne Dibley. You know, this is what the 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 not lower decks, the main crew of the Enterprise has taken over, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is this is the American normal version of Red Dwarf, and it's boring and awful. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it could be, could well be that. I mean, it's between this, it's between five and six that it actually happened. Um, the American, the first American pilot. So, um, from what I've read and, and and you know and heard and stuff, um, it wasn't a great experience for for um, Grant and Naylor. So, it wouldn't surprise me if if they did start <laughs> to sort of throw a little bit of shade at the American sort of producers and stuff, uh, or some at least the comments they may have got from that. Um, Oh my god, can you believe I stopped it there? That's right, we have finished our review of Series 5 of Red Dwarf, and we are going to be going to Series 6, but in the next episode we are also going to be talking about the American pilots, the actual two American pilots. I didn't want to give you all everything this week. A little bit of a teaser, a bit of a taster. You are going to get some discussion around Series 6 and the American series next week. I do hope you're enjoying our deep dive into Red Dwarf. It's been an absolute dream doing this, an absolute journey. There's so much more to come. We're just about getting to halfway. In fact, we're just under halfway. But we'll be back next week with more. Me and Julian talking more Red Dwarf. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to come and talk to us, find us on Twitter. That's at Pod Time Space. And we will happily have a discussion around Red Dwarf or any of the films we've discussed in any of the previous shows. Or, for that matter, if there's a film you want us to talk about, let us know. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you again next time. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. <laughs>